Well, good morning. It is good to see you all this morning as you have ventured out. We were talking a few moments ago as the elders and staff and I uh, all prayed together. We were mentioning that this is one of those perfect Sundays for a morning service. The weather is not good in the sense that it's you want to be outside and it's not so bad that you don't want to get outside. So it's one of those times where we just kind of think this is the perfect Sunday uh, to gather together as the Lord's family, and we're, we're thankful for you being here this morning. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and it is a special Sunday. Uh, later on, I, uh, we will be celebrating these three families who are, uh, have come before you all, or will come before you all, to dedicate their children before the Lord, and it is a commitment that we as a congregation will make to them as well. It is a joyful service, and one that I trust that you will be blessed by, encouraged in, and I encourage you to participate in. As you will see, you'll have opportunity to do so later, uh, keeping that in mind. As we think of 1 Thessalonians 5, we continue in our study on the coming day of the Lord, and we are beginning in verse 4. We've already ventured through verses 1 through 3, as we did last week, and today we're moving through verses 4 through 8. And we begin to recognize that there are some challenges already theologically. We've discussed them as we've come through chapter 4, the theological challenges that are in our world today, the debates between one side or the other, one position versus the other. But Scripture is quite clear, actually, on these issues, if we'll let it speak for itself, and that's what we intend to do this morning. As we do so, though, one of the reasons that there is some of the confusion is because we often want to know what's going to happen tomorrow. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you knew what was going to happen next week? You could say, I'm going to, I'm going to schedule better, right? If I know exactly what's going to happen, I know when to plan things, and I know how to avoid certain things. I don't know about you, but I enjoy knowing what's about to happen. I would rather control it. Maybe I'm a control freak. I don't know. Uh, I would rather control it. And that is typically how we view the future. We want to have plans, programs, all under our control. In fact, so much so as human beings, we look with great interest to the future. We want to know what will the next year hold? What will the next 10 years hold? 20 years hold? 1924, there were a few predictions about what 2024 would look like. And throughout this week, the office staff and I laughed as we read some of these. I'm not going to give you all of them. Some are quite serious. Some are very close uh, to what actually 100 years would bring. And some are quite outrageous. And you're going to hear some of them. One scientist predicted that with the rising use of automobiles, the horse would be on the brink of extinction. You know what? That probably should have happened. (laughs) It didn't happen. Um, But it's kind of interesting to see the the progression, the thought of this is going to be what is going to control our world so much that the horse will be extinct. Another scientist wrote, in 100 years' time, we, man will be able to chat in comfort over a telephone that can be used in his car, his house, his train. He will not hear the squeaky voice saying, what? Every few minutes. That guy, I want to get to know. He saw what was coming, right? Can you imagine somebody listening to that prediction in 1924, reading it in the newspaper and going, (laughs) I don't think so. There's no way that this is going to happen. But 100 years later, we have our 
phones in our pockets right now, uh, not, not just in our cars or houses or trains. A British politician predicted life expectancy would be at least 100 years old, and we'd still feel fairly young at 75. I won't ask you who are above 75 how young you feel, uh, but I'm guessing he missed the mark a little bit. In a book, this was so important, it was published in a book, in a book called The Wireless Possibilities, the author basically predicted the internet. He said, we'd be doing things, most things, remotely. And it would be great if you hate cities, quote, what a help to the man who objects to a large city. Why, could he not conduct his business from his house in comfort? There's another guy who got it pretty close. I think there's a lot of employers today that wish he wasn't so close. A nationally syndicated advice column thought America's eating habits would drastically change your looks. Quote, will we have any teeth at all? Will there be any color in our face except paint? Will the men have any height to speak of, or will they all be girth? I think he had a high view of sugar. In in the year 2024, one author or one scientist predicted this, and this is where we're going to narrow in a little bit. The most important single thing which the cinema will have help in a large way to accomplish will be that of eliminating from the face of the civilized world all armed conflict by 2024. He goes on to say, pictures will have the most powerful factor in bringing about this condition with the use of the universal language of motion motion pictures, the true meaning of the brotherhood of man will have been established throughout all the earth. That one's pretty somber, is it not? A hundred years after those words were penned and we're hearing wars and rumors of wars, increasing conflict around the world and the constant threat of World War III. What does the future hold? And how should we as a body of believers respond to what is uncertain about the future and what is certain? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul writes this, beginning in verse 4. He says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, For the helmets of the hope of salvation, let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in His Word this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before You. Having contemplated some of these predictions, we recognize that each of them come from the pens of learned individuals who believed that they knew what the future holds, so much so that they were willing to be mocked and ridiculed for their beliefs. And yet, some of them we see are relatively close to the reality of a hundred years later. Many are far off in one way or the other, but we also recognize that those that promised peace and claimed peace, peace, have been sorely wrong. We see in our world today a rise in all kinds of the wickedness and violence of humanity, the evidence of the depravity of mankind. And yet in all of this, your plans are perfect 
They have not failed in any way. And you have orchestrated all of the days before the day of the Lord. And so, Lord, as we dig into the text that is before us, we ask your understanding, that you would give us your understanding, that you would help us understand your word more completely, more fully, that as we venture into what is a theological diffi- theologically difficult text, that we would not be so trapped in our theological systems, but rather that we would allow Scripture to speak for itself. Lord, I ask as well that you would give us hearts then to not just leave this as a theological exercise, but that we would dig deeply into your word, understanding what we must do, and we praise you that Paul has application in mind. He has response and action that we as believers must take, and I ask that we would be bold in doing so this morning. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor that we who know you as Savior will not be surprised by the day of the Lord because we will have been raptured. We praise you that your word is clear on these issues and these matters. And we ask as we study through it this morning that we would then have the mindset of recognizing how to reach back into the darkness. That as we read in Second Peter last week, that your patience would be our patience. That your willingness to wait until the last come to know you as Savior would be our testimony and our example of reaching out into the darkness to save, to share the message of salvation that you may save those last remaining in this age. So, Lord, this is a weighty task. It is a difficult thing for us. We want to know the future. We want to write books. We want to predict what's going to take place. But I pray that we would allow your word to be that which resonates in our hearts and our lives and that we would be made ready, that we would be those who stand truly as children of the light this morning. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for all these things. We ask your blessing upon our time in your word that we'd be changed by it. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we dig into the text before us that we have already read this morning, we recognize that there is a bit of understanding we've already gleaned from last week. And so we back up to verses 1 through 3 where Paul says now this, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So Paul has begun this instruction of what's going to take place after the rapture. We see chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, all of the instruction of building up to what is going to take place with the church. And now Paul's instructing the church in Thessalonica of what is going to take place after those rapture events, and likely immediately after those events rapture events. And so Paul is addressing this issue, but remember it is one that is confused by the false teachers in Thessalonica who are going to add to it and say, well, these events have already taken place. And so Paul is going to write in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 about these matters again. And so all of this context becomes very important for us as we move through into verses 4 and 5 of chapter 5. Paul is still speaking to those who know Christ as Savior. This is a letter written to the Thessalonian believers, and it is instructing them of the coming day of the Lord, how they ought to live in light of a day that they will not participate in. How should they now live? And Paul reminds them in verse 4 that you are not in darkness, brothers. We must recognize in the day versus night distinction that Paul draws that if you know Christ as Savior, you are not 
of the night. It's pretty easy to slip into the habits of nighttime in the way that Paul uses it here. It's pretty easy to slip into the systems that the world has put into place to extrapolate upon their false sense of hope and false sense of promise. But Paul says you are not of the night. You are not one who is of the darkness, using both of these ideas in contrast with light and day over the next several verses. Last week, we started by looking at the timing and the characteristics of the day of the Lord. We studied all the way back through the prophets of old into the book of Revelation, and we began to understand some of the characteristics and the timing of this coming day of the Lord. But Paul shifts, saying there's no need to have anybody write to you of the times and the seasons. That is, that those are of the Lord. We saw back in Acts chapter 1 last week, verse 7, that the times and the seasons are of the Lord. As the disciples were asking Jesus, when will the kingdom come? Jesus says, that's for the Father to know. And so Paul writes the same to these Thessalonian believers. The timing is not for you and I to know, despite books being written about it, and we highlighted one of those last week as well. There's volumes written on when Christ will return, but none know the date. And if they proclaim to know the date, they're wrong. Paul digs in and he says, there's no need to write of the times and the seasons, but there is a need to write of what you should be doing in preparation for that time and season. And that's where we focus this morning. He moves from the characteristics of the day of the Lord to how we are to act in light of this future history. This promise that will be fulfilled. How we act towards this event depends on who we are. Do you know Christ as Savior? Then there is the expectancy of one habit, practice, faith. Do you not know Christ as Savior? Then there is the expectancy of darkness. And so Paul draws a critical line right here. We are not all in the same camp, and we are not in various other camps. You can't say, well, I, I'm a religious person, so therefore, because I'm religious, I can work my own way there, and we'll all get there together somehow. Lisa, when she was a teacher back in Kansas City, had uh, a chaplain come in, or a, a, rather he was a priest that the Christian school had brought in to speak, and one of his themes was that we can go your, you could go your way and I can go my way and we'll all get there together somehow. What a devastating statement. Paul draws a clear distinction. If you've never accepted Christ alone for your salvation, then you are of the night. If you have accepted Christ alone for your salvation, if you've trusted in Christ alone, not trying to work your own way there, understanding your sinful condition, and you've trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, then you are of the light. And that requires certain behaviors, not for salvation, but after salvation. And Paul is drawing that out here. You should be different, and you will be different from those who are of darkness. You will stand out in direct contrast to them. What does that look like when we think of the day of the Lord? Paul turns his attention to the believers in Thessalonica and boldly tells them that they are not of the darkness. 
Why was this important? Why would Paul be so direct to the Thessalonian believers? Well, they're easily going to slip into the confusion that you and I slip into, and ours is a little bit more sophisticated, perhaps, thought out theologically, perhaps, more than was in Thessalonica, but there was still the confusion that existed, so much so that Paul had to address it again in 2 Thessalonians. He says, I was not saying that this day has already happened. In fact, I was saying it hasn't happened, but it will happen. And so Paul is drawing out these clear distinctions, and he's showing them that as children of the light, there is a clear difference. And there are clear expectations cutting all the way through the theological fog that is associated with this passage, and therefore we should respond the same as Paul is calling the Thessalonians to response. The common word picture in the New Testament is the use of light and dark, day and night. Those of the light are believers, and those of the darkness have not yet come to know Christ as Savior, and Paul is drawing that clear distinction. But Paul's emphasis is more than identifying the sides or the status of the individuals. He is primarily concerned with reminding those of the light, those who are believers, that they are not subjected to the coming day of the Lord. And therefore, they have a responsibility to live differently. The reason is not because someone figured out the timing and wrote the book that sold millions of copies and now they were suddenly prepared as preppers getting ready for the end of the world. And it's not because somebody has figured out the systems, but because you are children of light, there is an expectant difference in you. And notice, as Paul will say, this is the key difference. We're not going to study this passage in detail this morning, but skip ahead to verse 9 and notice the key difference. This will be reserved for, Lord willing, next week. The scripture says this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul winds up the discussion on what you and I who are of the light ought to be doing in light of the coming day of the Lord, he says that you who know Christ as Savior are not destined to wrath. In other words, you're not going to live through this period of the day of the Lord. We will be those who are taken up in the rapture, as Paul discussed in the previous chapter. In chapter 4, we're, we recognize that as we understand the characteristics of the day of the Lord, that we will remember that at least the first part of the day of the Lord is the period of the tribulation. This is a yet future time where the wrath of God is poured out on the inhabitants of this world and the world itself. And Revelation 6 and following details all of the accounts of these moments. There is an important linguistic observation. And this is an observation, but I hope that you, as you're studying through these texts before Sunday service and after Sunday service for small groups and, and other elements of daily living, that you would observe these small linguistic differences. Notice what Paul says. He includes himself with those who are of the light. Verse 4, he says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. Then listen, we are not of the night nor of the darkness. So Paul is addressing the Thessalonians, and then he puts himself with them. And then he moves on and he says, So then let us not sleep as others do. 
So Paul has lumped himself together with the Thessalonian believers as us and we and those of the darkness as them and others. And then when we get down to verse 9, he says, For God has not destined us for wrath. These are critical distinctions where Paul is putting himself into the same category as the Thessalonians, as those who are of the light. And those who are of darkness are not the same. It's light versus dark. It's day versus night. Not in the sense of conflict, although there is conflict that emerges from them, but as it concerns results, those who will endure the day of the Lord and those who will be freed from the wrath of God. So Paul has drawn a very clear distinction. There are two groups, those who are of the day and those who are of the night. Paul will continue to contrast them as we move through the rest of the text, but as we do so, Paul is giving to us instructions. If you are of the light, there is instructions for you. If you've not yet come to receive Christ as your personal Savior, to trust in Christ alone for your salvation, Paul will speak to you as well. But it will be in the sense of the passivity of what will take place. Paul is speaking specifically to those who are of the light, to those who know Christ. The contrast between day and night is that those of the day are awake. Well, at least you should still be awake. (laughs) What does Paul mean by awake? We're not destined for wrath. There is no room for laziness, sleepiness, or apathy in the church today. It is important that you and I understand that when Paul says awake, he's not simply meaning that your eyes are open, that you are sitting there paying attention. Paul is calling us to more than seat warmers. Those who have kept your seat comfortable in the right temperature. He's contrasting the day and the night. Those who are not destined for wrath are those of the light, and we must be those who are active, participating, avoiding the sleepiness, avoiding apathy in the church today. One commentator writes this. He says, Paul is saying, do not begin to dream like the world around you is dreaming. Do not fall into the trap of living in a fantasy world of make-believe. Our purpose for living in the third millennium is not to accumulate massive wealth or to make a big name for ourselves. Our real reason for living is to use our ability to the full in the center of the will of God. For the church, we must be those who are using every element every giftedness, every ability for the full will of God to be accomplished. And so when we read of the patience of God in 2 Peter, that should motivate us to be better evangelists, as God is patient towards those who have not yet received Christ as Savior. And so while we call for and we beg the Lord for the return of the Lord, let us do so with action, not inaction. Let us be those who look forward to the rapture of the church with so much zeal and so much passion that we have gone screaming into that time period the gospel of Jesus Christ on our lips. And may we do so fully alert and fully awake. Paul is going to return to this theme, 
before we're finished this morning as he comes into verse 8, but he's going to bookend the instruction here with it to start, let us be awake, and with it to put on the armor of God, as we'll see in verse 8. We must be alert. We must recognize the dangers that exist in our world, specifically those that will lull us into a sleepy, drunken stupor. That means we should be self-controlled, which Paul will get to in a moment. Not allowing circumstances or pressures to determine our behavior. Not given to one whim or the other. What's going to take place? We started this year asking the question, as we look into 2025, a year from January 1st of this year, we will have a new generation, Generation Beta. Generation Beta, which there's all kinds of discussion as if that will stay their name because millennials and Gen Zers don't want their kids to be of Generation Beta. They want them to be of Generation Alpha because that's better than Beta. (laughs) Isn't that the way that we live and operate? We want better. We, We want it to be best for us. Let us not get lulled into that kind of sleepiness, into that kind of apathy that we are in the pursuit of our will. The thought here, as Paul moves into this idea, is that we are not getting in uh, to the busyness, dreamlike, false sense of security that our world experiences. As we dig into it, Paul says this in verse 4 and 5. He says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Keep awake and be sober. As Paul is moving in, to these verses, he's reminding us it, all the instruction of verses 4 and 5 that you should not be taken by surprise. You're not children of, of darkness. You're children of light. The surprise of the day of the Lord isn't even for you because you're going to be out of here. You're going to be raptured. You're going to be gone before the thief comes. But you should be living in light of that coming day nonetheless. And how does that look? He says, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. To be sober means that we must be alert, recognizing the dangers. And it literally means to be self-controlled. The thought here is of someone who is not easily ruffled. They are not those who are driven out by this or driven out by that. They have a calm outlook on life. This is the kind of person who hears tragic news but does not lose heart. It does not mean that they are free from tragic news or hardship in their life. It means that they respond appropriately. Someone who has experienced difficulties but does not give up. For he knows his future is secure in God's hands, unflappable, and it is one who is trusting in those truths. It's pretty easy in a self-made society for you to feel distraught when tragedy strikes, or when the wrong politician is elected, or when 
our company has gone into practices and policies that are adverse to biblical Christianity. What do we do? What do we do? For the believer who is awake and sober, we are self-controlled, not because of your own capacities, but because of the one that you serve. Because God is the one who has provided your security. Believers who live in this manner will not be caught up in sensational news, but will have a proper understanding of an eternal perspective. And you will know that this is a temporal statement, a temporal life. But Paul, nonetheless, gives us three let us statements in the midst of this. Three statements that are important for you and I, and ones that we should remember. And they're scattered throughout. Two of them are found here in verse 6. One of them is found in verse 8. Notice what he says in these couple of verses. Verse 6, he says, So then, let us not sleep as others do. Believer, as Paul is instructing you on what you should be doing, the application of the response to the day of the Lord is, Do not be those who dream in the false sense of security. Be alert. And then, let us keep awake and be sober. Let us be self-controlled. So Paul says it twice. Let us be awake and let us be sober. He says for the first time, but he's going to say that again as we get to verse 8. He says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. So Paul really tells us two things. Be awake, not asleep. And be sober. Be self-controlled. Because, as we will see, our trust is not in the things of, the, of man's creation, of man's abilities. Notice, as he contrasts those by looking into the character of darkness, the character of the dark, in verse 7. The scripture there says, in verse 7, these words, For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Paul describes those of the darkness as being quite opposite of those who are of the light. They are sleepy and drunk, while those of the light are alert and sober, are awake and sober. Clear contrast. These are not two that really blend very well together. Those who are of the darkness, who are sleepy and drunk, have been self-deceived. And they've been self-deceived into the stupor of the false sense of their own created paradise. For them, this is as good as it gets. For them who do not know the Lord, they can deceive themselves into believing that somewhere out there is paradise and they just have to work their own system to get there. Whether that be through jobs or intellect or religious systems, there's some way to get to this paradise, but really this is pretty good, so I'm going to have my best life now. And that is all that they have. Those of the darkness are unprepared for the coming day of the Lord. And they are those who will face its arrival. Paul says back in verse 4 and 5 that you are not to be taken by surprise by the thief because you're not going to be here. Those who know Christ as Savior will be raptured at the arrival of the coming day of the Lord. 
And when that day arrives, and when it arrives, there will be those who are of the darkness who are not prepared for that day. But they will have lulled themselves in to a drunken stupor of their own self-deception and their own self-importance. And when it comes, they will be the ones who face the day of the Lord. So what must you do? What must you do? Paul has instructions to be battle ready. I find his phraseology interesting. Because Paul has not backed off in any way of the battle that exists between the forces of Satan and the Christian. He has not backed off in any way to lull the Christian into a sense of everything's going to be okay. Just trust, trust, trust. What he says is, the Lord will take care of all of the details, but in the process, you have responsibilities to be battle ready. You are not in an innocuous society. You are not in a place that is intent for your safety. And yet many Christians go through life as if that is where we live today. That the world is to be designed for our safety and our comfort. We've kind of gotten into this idea because we even have to put on a McDonald's cup of coffee that it's hot. And we've adapted that into the Christian society, have we not? Of course, if you buy coffee from McDonald's, hot coffee from McDonald's, you expect it to be? Oh, maybe only a few of us do. We expect it to be hot. But we have to have a warning label on it. We have to have it written in small print around the bottom of the cup because that somehow helps us keep us safe. <laughs> we have bought into the illusion of safety. And Paul is confronting that directly without even having to say so because he says, put on the armor. Now you do not put on the armor if you do not anticipate at some point needing it. You do not put on armor every day because it's comfortable. Ask any of the police officers or sheriffs who are associated with our fellowship. Do they put on body armor every day because of its stylistic values? And the answer is no, it's heavy. It is not comfortable. It's bulky. But why do they wear it? Because one day they anticipate the need of it. Perhaps, but they put on the full armor. Paul calls us to the same. Look in verse 8. He says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet, and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. We are to be those who every day put on the armor. Every day put on the armor. Returning to those, having moved through those of the darkness, those who do not know Christ as Savior, Paul says that they are in a drunken stupor, but you who are of the light are sober. He returns to that idea, let us therefore be sober. Let us be those who are self-controlled. We can see what they cannot see. Not that we have better understanding of the times and the seasons, 
but that we are certain that God will do what God said he will do. And if God will do what God said he's going to do, then you and I are prepared and we are ready for it. We are not just simply saying, well, I can't wait for the Lord's return and then doing nothing in anticipation of the Lord's return. We are those who anxiously anticipate the return of Christ for his church. And we live according to that, which means that our hearts are attuned to those who are lost and our hearts are attuned to the Great Commission. And we're focused on doing the will of God. Those become our challenges, but there are obstacles to doing those things. And so Paul says, put on the armor. Let us be self-controlled, sober, and put on the armor. We are not left in a vacuum of our own self-aspirations. Paul does not say, beginning in verses 4 through 6, you are not of Darkness, so you have nothing to worry about. Sit back in your chairs and enjoy the ride. Paul says, let us be awake. Let us be sober. Let us put on the armor. We are called to be self-controlled. In direct conflict with the world around us, we are not told to have some wishful thinking, to trust in karma to get those people who have treated you poorly or to look in ourselves or any other such malarkey for the confidence or directions that the world is so apt to tell you you should be doing. Paul says, be self-controlled because you belong to the day. Believer, Paul is giving you practical application. Does theology of the end times matter? There are those within Christendom today who will say it is of little consequence. There's all, all these other issues that are so much more important, and we won't even discuss this because it's divisive and it's unclear. Well, Scripture seems pretty clear. Scripture's pretty clear, and at least, even if you have confused ideas on what the end times will bring, you cannot deny that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you better believe that Christ is going to return. And it should change the way that you live today. Not that you are living to bring in some sort of utopia because you will not be able to do so. But because you trust that the Lord in his return will make things right. However that theology works, and we're gonna, we've already walked through some of the fine-tooth elements of that. Paul is not doing that in this specific text, but he has done so before and will do so again. And so he is building off of those points. But as he does so, as he's building off of those points, the theological distinction he is drawing is that you who are of the light are not of the day of the Lord. And if you are not of the day of the Lord, then that means that you must live differently today in anticipation of that day. And so be sober. Do not worry so much about the trends of society. You can pick up a newspaper or read the news online, and you can look through all of the sensational headlines, and you can have an aneurysm before you are done reading. I picked up the news this past week. I was thumbing through trying to find the, a better news site than the ones I've been using, and as I go through that, I'm reading through some of these headlines, and I thought, wow, what a deplorable, wicked place we live. I'm not sure we can survive the day. Isn't that how it feels? That you read through the news and you hear that China is developing a COVID 
variant that has 100% mortality rate. And that there's threats of war in places like Lebanon and Yemen and Iran and Iraq, Turkey, and of course Israel and Ukraine. And you just start enlisting all of the nations who are involved in conflict. Isn't that depressing? But many Christians have fallen into the trends of social media sensationalism. And we follow this trend, and we follow this trend. And, oh, this political candidate, he's going to get into office, or she's going to get into office, and we can't have that, so we've got to rally to this point and rally to that point. And Christians have been tossed to and fro in the waves of secular society. That is not obedience to what Paul says here. You are to be sober, self-controlled, anticipating that the next eschatological event to take place is the rapture of the church. And so therefore, your actions must reflect that Christ could return at any moment. I've likely shared this illustration, but I'm going to share it again. It's one of my favorites because it picks on myself. And that is years ago when I was uh, maybe 10 or 11 years old, my mom had left me with a list of chores to do. And then she went to town. And she went shopping and she said, you need to have these things all done. Well, I'm 10 or 11 years old. I, I have great capacities in my imagination and great skill at getting things done very, very rapidly in my imagination. Not realizing that my mom had already calculated out all of the time that I had and was going to keep me busy the whole time. One of the things that she had designed for me was I was to vacuum the floor in the living room. And so I sat down figuring I had all kinds of time to vacuum the floor in the living room. And we had quite a, drive, quite a road up to our house. So I was sitting there where I could watch out the window and I'm playing video games or I'm doing something that I probably shouldn't have been doing. And I noticed that my mom is driving up the road. I have a quarter of a mile before the living room is to be vacuumed. I did not have time to plug it in. But I knew my mom would be looking to see if I'd vacuumed the floor. And so what did I do? I made sure that there were lines on the floor. As I ran the vacuum back and forth across the floor, not plugged in, mind you, but leaving the line so that when my mom walked in, she would believe that I had done nobly and had followed the instructions. Obviously, that didn't last. I had waited until the very last moment and then tried to get everything together. Believer, do not do that. Do not believe that you will have anticipated time before the return of the Lord to be found faithful to the Lord. Let us be sober. Let us not be running a vacuum with no power simply for the appearance or the facade of obedience. Paul goes on. This is how we follow this instruction. Put on the armor, starting with the breastplate of faith and love. We studied faith and love when we were back in chapter 1, 
And it's fascinating to me because in other places, Paul uses these words. He changes the order in 1 Corinthians, but he says faith, hope, and love in 1 Corinthians. Here he says faith, love, and hope. And he's done so before. Turn back to chapter 1. We studied back in chapter 1, verse 3, why Paul would use these terms, but I want to read them again for you. We're not going to totally revisit it for the sake of time. But notice verse 3 of chapter 1. He says, Remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is praising the Lord for these three characteristics. These three characteristics of faith, love, and hope demonstrated in the life of the Thessalonian believers. But now when he comes to chapter 5, he says, Every day put on faith and love as the breastplate. Now, the breastplate is truly this bulletproof vest. If we were to think of it in this way, in modern times, we would recognize that Paul is calling us to put on the bulletproof vest. But we also remember from Ephesians 6 that he's told us to put on the breastplate of righteousness. So we have already the command to put on the full armor of God in Ephesians 6, but here Paul says to put on the breastplate of faith and love. The idea of putting on the armor is not a new idea to Paul. In fact, it was of Isaiah, Isaiah 59, where we're told to put on the armor of God, and Isaiah 59, verse 17. And Paul will use it not only in Ephesians and 1 Thessalonians, but he'll also use it in Romans chapter 13, verse 12, where he describes the armor that you are to put on as the armor of, get this, light. Because you are of the light. And so Paul has been consistent with these themes, and he's saying put on righteousness, and he's also saying put on faith and love as the breastplate. As he puts these words to the instruction of the breastplate, let us notice that he could be, likely speaking, of the inside and the outside of the breastplate. The breastplate is uncomfortable. For the sentry, though, who puts on the armor, he will be protected because the outside of the breastplate is a hard shell. And on the inside, there is the layer of comfort. And so one commentator has said that this is the inside and the outside of faith being the outside and love being the inside, the the softer side of the breastplate. Whatever view that we take, we recognize that Paul has already commended the Thessalonians for these behaviors. Faith that looks to the Lord as the one who supplies all things to us, following after obediently what he has called us to do, and demonstrating a love that resembles the one that we serve. So this isn't our love. This isn't the love in which we can say, well, we can tolerate one another with. This is the love that Christ has loved you with. So the century is to put on a love that penetrates through all elements of whatever circumstances you're going to face because you've been loved with an everlasting love and it will differentiate you as different from darkness. They will know, those who are outside the church will know you by your love for one another in the body of Christ and your love for those who do not yet know Christ. And they will not like you for it if you haven't noticed. They will stand opposed to that kind of love even though they desperately need the kind of love that will tell them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Our faith forms the sturdy, bulletproof outside. It is what holds us firm and grounded. It is not resting in our own capacities. It's resting in what the Lord will do, what He said He will accomplish. So Paul says, put on the breastplate of faith and love. Remember, the church is already doing this. So do it more. Put it on all the time. And then he says as well, he says that we are to put on for the helmets hope, the hope of salvation. Think of the helmets of the SWAT team. You've thought of the body armor. Think of the helmet of the SWAT team. Or think of the helmet, a motorcycle helmet, or the helmet of a football player. It is all used to protect the head against significant collisions or impacts. Hope is the helmet that protects the mind. Hebrews defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, and the word hope is the conviction of things not seen. What is he speaking of? Specifically, Paul is speaking of this hope of salvation. That is not your redemption, remember, or not the beginning, the, the, por- the portion of you coming to know Christ as Savior, but the end result of that salvation, the glorification of your body being with the Lord forever and eternity. So as Paul speaks of these issues, Paul is saying this is what drives us, this is what motivates us. The faith and love that is being uh, that which is growing in us and we're driving to the things of the Lord, standing firm and steadfast as centuries who are watching, guarding, guards who stand firm. And for a helmet, the reason we stand there is we look to a day when Christ will return. We long for that day. We yearn for that day. We know that that day will come. It's the conviction of things not yet seen because we know that Christ's return is future history. Our conviction is that the Lord will fulfill His promise. And though we cannot see it today, it is very near at hand. Paul parallels chapter 1 with chapter 5. He begins with faith, love, and hope. And he's ending, or nearly ending, the letter with faith, love, and hope. Coming full circle, he's pressing these believers ever onward. He's praising the Lord for the demonstration of these characteristics in them, and now he's calling them to the application thereof to continue in those. And so that is our application as believers who have studied through this point. We have more to study on the coming day of the Lord, but as we continue in that study and as we wait for that day, let us be those who are faithful in faith, love, and hope. Let us be those who are driven to grow in it on a day-to-day basis to be found faithful to the things of the Lord, obedient to stand firm as centurions putting on the armor and ready for the battle that ensues. Let us not be lulled into this idea that we are not in a battlefield. Beloved, you are in a battle. And as we wait for the day where Christ will return for the church, Let us engage in that battle as faithful evangelists, biblical disciplers, 
and obedient to reach every generation that we can until the return of Christ. That is how we started the year. And the reminder of those things, that is what we study tonight. And by the way, picking up on what Scott said, the game starts at 6.30. Church ends at 7. You're not going to miss much. I'll get you out of here around 8 o'clock or so. You're not, I'm, I'm kidding. Let us be faith. We're going to study discipleship tonight. Let us be faithful disciplers. Let us do the will of God. And let us be those who are alert, sober, self-controlled, so that God can begin to work through us here in Byron Center. Let me close this portion of our service in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for the time we could spend looking into these great truths. We have so much more joyous things in this morning service, but I pray that we would continue to reflect on these great truths. Lord, we are mindful as well the day that we live in. A day where a hundred years ago they said there will be peace, understanding of the brotherhood of mankind, and yet today we hear wars, wars, and rumors of wars. Lord, I pray that we would not put our faith in those promises that are made or those predictions that are predicting the end of the earth or any other thing except what we find in your word. May we be found faithful to practice faith, love, and hope as we see the day, of Christ, or the day of the Lord drawing near, may we be found faithful and obedient in living out the principles that Paul has called the Thessalonians to. May your name be glorified in it. Lord, as we lift our voices in song again, I pray that this would be the confession of our souls, that we would be those who are putting on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet and the hope of our salvation. And we give you the glory and the honor for all of these truths that we've studied this morning. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.